Thanks to LinkedIn for supporting Industry Focus. LinkedIn Jobs screens candidates with the hard and soft skills you're looking for so you can hire the right person fast. Find the right person with LinkedIn Jobs. Get $50 off your first job post at linkedin.com slash fool. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wildcard! Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Friday, February 14th, Valentine's Day. And we are talking about how some big decisions from regulators are impacting the tech space. I'm your host, Dylan Lewis, and I'm joined by fellow IF host, Nick Seipel. Nick, what's going on, man? Uh, it's doing all right, man. It's it's fun to be in the guest chair. You know, I get to get to uh, maybe be a little. Uh, man, I didn't answer that question that well. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's perfect. Yeah, you know, there's there's a stress I think to to hosting that goes unrealized when you don't have to do it. Where you know you're kind of managing the flow of the conversation. You're making sure that we seamlessly transition from one topic to the next. You don't have to worry about that. Yeah, over here, my job is to get the people going, Dylan. So maybe we can get the people going a little bit, uh, a little bit today. So you're the you're the hype man for today's show as we're talking about SoftBank, uh, the FTC, and the Sprint T-Mobile merger. Before that, though, it's it's Friday the 14th in February. Uh, what's the Valentine's Day plan for you? Yeah, so me and my fiance, we got engaged back in December. If folks haven't heard that, um, we're going uh, to dinner this afternoon, and then we're going to uh, the Mortified Live podcast. It's going to be in DC. I don't know if you've seen their stuff on Netflix. Basically, it's this live show thing where people read their old like journals from like middle school and like <laughs> the letters they wrote to their crush and all that sort of thing. Uh, Lacey's really big into it. And uh, I, I've watched their their show on, on Netflix. It's pretty funny. So I think it uh, should be fun. Gosh, I think I have some eighth and ninth grade poetry that probably did not age very well. Um, hopefully that doesn't see the light of day. Big props to the people that can go read that stuff on stage. Yeah, I will be observing, not uh, reading any of my embarrassing uh, middle school thoughts. So that's nice. That's awesome. Uh, Jess and I are going to be cooking dinner tonight and hanging out low key. That's that's kind of the the mo. But we've got a lot of friend stuff going on this weekend, so we're trying to just take it easy and relax. Um, speaking of love affairs, Sprint T-Mobile, this this merger that will it happen, won't it happen? Uh, we finally have some word from the FTC on their decision and what it looks like will happen uh, with this deal. Yes, so so this is this is a deal that those companies have been flirting back and forth <laughs> uh, for the past several years since this merger was announced. So and so we heard uh, from Judge Victor Marrero of the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of New York on Tuesday. Uh, he ruled in favor of allowing T-Mobile and Sprint to merge. I think there was kind of three big takeaways uh, from this case. First was Sprint's business is just really in rough shape. Uh, just to read a quote uh, from the court. It said the court. Uh, is substantially persuaded that Sprint does not have a sustainable long-term competitive strategy and will, in fact, cease to be a truly national wireless carrier. Said Sprint has struggled to retain the customers that initially attracted with aggressive offers due in large part to its underlying poor network quality. And this is the, this is the money quote, I think. That Sprint's discount offers deserve some consideration for their pro-consumer posture, but in retrospect, they reflect a desperate and un- an ultimately unsuccessful effort to stay relevant. So, just takeaway from the court here is that Sprint is dead in the water, and if this merger doesn't happen, uh, they're in trouble. You know, we tend to think about a lot of this stuff as like, you know, is this going to create problems for consumers? And I think it's particularly scathing that one of the first points in this decision is Sprint cannot last on its own. And I'm living proof of this as someone that was formerly a Sprint customer. I was someone who's a Verizon customer for a while, and they had this online deal where it was just like, you can get a free year of our unlimited data plan. And you just pay taxes and fees. It was like four dollars a month. 
And their whole point there was, we are going to do customer acquisition. We're going to steal all these customers, come in really low, and get a bunch of people from Verizon. Well, they did. And then once I had to pay standard fare a year later, I went to one of the MVNOs and just switched and am now with a far cheaper option. So, yeah, I think there are probably a lot of people like me that did that. A lot of these customer acquisition things, they don't really work out long term. Absolutely. And if you look at the numbers uh, in the couple years since this deal was agreed upon, Sprint subscribers have fallen about half a million, while T Mobile subscribers have increased by 12 million. So, so you know, the Sprint as a business is really kind of in secular decline. And so the court determined that this company wasn't necessarily going to be able to exist on its own. Now, now that on its own wasn't enough to get this case over over uh, the hurdle. There were still some concerns of, if we allow this merger to, to take place, and we consolidate this industry down to three players, AT&T, T-Mobile, and Verizon, it's going to be anti-competitive, uh, could potentially allow T-Mobile to raise rates. Uh, the court was kind of convinced that, that that's not going to take place. And the key word here is mavericks. So, <laughs> so uh, the, the word maverick was used 16 times in the decision and was used to describe both DISH and T-Mobile. When we mentioned uh, consolidating the industry down uh, to three players from four, DISH allows, uh, allowed the court to determine that maybe that's not quite going to take place. Uh, so the, the conditions of the merger involve this complicated scheme where Dish uh, is supposed to emerge as the fourth wireless player. You mentioned MVNOs. They're going to have a relationship with a new T-Mobile where they will get some preferential treatment on using their spectrum and that sort of thing. Uh, There's some skepticism on the plaintiff side in this case of whether Dish is truly uh, incentivized to to build out this this network. They've actually been accumulating uh, wireless spectrum going back to 2012, so for eight years, and have not come out with a network. The plaintiff's argued uh, and suggested that Dish's network would be something that lawyers can use, but not something that customers can use. A lot of, a lot of that uh, uh, growth and build-out of, their, of their, uh, their infrastructure has been the FCC saying, if you don't use this spectrum, we're going to take it away from you. Uh, the, the court, however, thinks D- Dish is going to be a quote-unquote disruptive maverick and come into this market and allow, uh, allow competition to remain. So that, that's an important part of this deal is Dish coming into the market and finally using that spectrum uh, that they've been sitting on for so many years. I have to say that's a little bit of a bold assumption because if you were just to have looked at Dish over that eight-year period that you were talking about, um, it seems an awful lot like they were squatting on all of these things that they had rights to with the hope that they might be able to sell those to someone else down the line. Yes, that that's the allegation uh, that the plaintiffs in this case had is basically saying that they're going to do whatever the regulators make them do to hold on to this spectrum. Uh, but but over the long term, their argument is that is the, the dish maybe doesn't have the intent to build this out. Uh, we shall see. Dish is using a strategy; they want to use this all digital network uh, that nobody has done before. Which uh, Dish Chairman Charlie Ergen has as noted has some risk that may not work out. Uh, so we'll see, but but clearly the court uh, was convinced uh, that Dish is is incentivized to pursue this strategy, and that that's part of what they're going to do. On the other side, the other maverick uh, in this case is T-Mobile. Obviously, uh, when you look at this combined company, you're going to have 126 million customers, still number three behind AT and T and Verizon. However, the the big thing is as after this deal is closed. Uh, the, the new T-Mobile is going to have more wireless frequencies than any other U.S. carrier, which gives it some advantages as it transitions to 5G. And so there were concerns uh, from the plaintiffs in this case that this may result in, in, some, uh, in T-Mobile being incentivized to increase rates anti-competitively. However, once again, the court was convinced that T-Mobile is going to be a maverick in this case. Uh, I said that T-Mobile has redefined itself over the past decade as a maverick that has spurned the two largest players in its industry to make numerous pro-consumer changes. And he thinks the new T-Mobile would likely make use of that advantage by cutting prices to take market share from its biggest competitors. Uh, so obviously, the, by and the court cites that 
the way they determined this was by looking at the credibility of the witnesses on the stand. They saw John Ledger testify and was just convinced based on his testimony uh, that that was the strategy they're going to take. We'll just have to see how things play out. Obviously, puts this new T-Mobile in a, in a strong position uh, to roll out 5G. They'll have the most robust uh, spectrum holdings of any other wireless competitor. So uh, AT&T and Verizon really have a, a real competitor on their hands now. So yeah, I think when you think Maverick, you tend to think John Legere. I, th- I think that's a that's a pretty fair association, and I can understand that. Um, now, is John Legere going to be the one actually calling the shots here? No, that's not the way that this company is going to be set up. And I think the concerns about the costs coming down are legitimate. You know, for the most part, what we see with a lot of these huge acquisitions, these big mergers, is okay. We're going to realize all these efficiencies by having. Two different businesses under one hood will be able to serve all these customers. We'll be able to reduce some of our major overhead costs. We'll pass those savings along. Well, that works as long as you have a pretty vibrant marketplace with a lot of providers. It goes away if there's a stranglehold that only a couple people have access to, and you could see the case where prices start to rise down the road. Yeah, I think one surprising thing you mentioned consolidation from this merger. Uh, the day after, or the day that the merger was announced, John Ledger came out and said, "We're actually going to increase hiring as a result of this merger. They expect to add uh, eleven thousand jobs by twenty twenty four." Which, from my perspective, when you when you see a merger like this bringing together these these really large organizations with lots of back-end infrastructure, you would think uh, that they would hire fewer numbers of people. Uh, but based on what Ledger said and clearly convinced the court of uh, during the case, is that they're going to continue to invest in building out 5G, uh, continue to to push down prices to compete with AT&T and Verizon. Uh, we'll see. that that We'll see how things play out. The case isn't even necessarily over yet. There are 13 states in D.C. There were the plaintiffs in this case who uh, have suggested they may still appeal. New York Attorney General, New York is one of the lead uh, states in this case, uh, Letitia James, said, from the start, this merger has been about massive corporate profits over all else. And despite the company's false claims, this deal will endanger wireless subscribers where it hurts the most, their wallets. So, when I when I read that quote, I hear that maybe maybe they want to still appeal. And another thing to think about uh, here is Deutsche Telekom, which is the majority owner uh, of T-Mobile, is also seeking to renegotiate the terms of this deal. So, the original merger agreement expired back at the beginning of November. And uh, when that merger agreement was first put in place, it gave it all st- the all stock deal gave Sprint an equity value of twenty seven billion dollars. However, in the interim, T Mobile stock has appreciated over time. Sprint stock has depreciated. So now the market currently values Sprint at twenty billion dollars, while the value of the deal today in T Mobile stock is thirty six billion dollars. So there is some some suggestion that there could be some continued negotiation between the parties uh, now that that uh, merger agreement has expired, but. There are no more regulatory regulatory barriers to move the case along. That's always one of the risks you're going to run into the longer it takes for a deal to actually close, especially if there's any stock involved in the deal. But you know, if you have these companies basically sitting on the sidelines waiting for several years, you know, market caps are going to change. It's only natural for those things to happen. We can't really talk about this deal though, specifically the Sprint side of this deal, without also touching on SoftBank because SoftBank is probably the business that has the most exposure to Sprint's outcomes. Yeah, so SoftBank owns about 84% of Sprint, worth about $29 billion. So when we talk about who's going to be negotiating with Deutsche Telekom on the changes in this deal, it's going to be SoftBank and the majority owner of that business. Uh, under the current terms of the deal, SoftBank, after this transaction, will own 27% of the new T-Mobile. The big takeaway here from SoftBank is that it will move, uh, as a majority owner of Sprint, it had to carry all of Sprint's debt on its balance sheet. But after this transaction is completed, they will only own 27% of the stock. So that means they get to take over $40 billion in Sprint debt that is currently listed on SoftBank's balance sheet, get to take it off their balance sheet, which 
you know, for a company like like SoftBank, which which holds a lot of debt, has some questions around the company when it comes to that. Uh, also, we mentioned that Sprint, uh, you know, was kind of sinking. SoftBank gets to get that, uh, get those concerns off their plate, gets to make their balance sheet look a little bit better, getting forty billion dollars of debt uh, off, which uh, which is very helpful for the company. Uh, when you look at the balance sheet of this company, that this is particularly relevant uh, to how Masa Sun, the founder and, and CEO of this company, wants you to analyze uh, the business. He, he cited the rabbit duck illusion. I don't know if you've seen this, Dylan, where depending on which way you look at it, it either looks like a rabbit or a duck uh, to describe how he wants uh, investors to view the company. He wants the conglomerate to be viewed as an investment company, not an operating one. So pay less attention uh, to to the operating business underneath and pay more attention to the assets it holds. When you hear that, what do you think about that, Dylan? Well, I I think that it's worth taking a step back for a second and saying, for listeners that didn't know that SoftBank operated in the telecom space, that's really what they do. That is what this company is known for. They've been in the news so much over the last six months because the non-operating element of their business, if you will, the investing side of their business, which is a very small part of the overall company, has made some pretty bad investments. And They have this venture cap arm to them. And I think increasingly, Masasan wants people to focus on that. That's a lot more exciting than a telecom business, which tends to be a little bit more staid, a little bit more stodgy. If you want a company, or if you want the market to focus on your company and look at it in an investing perspective and not an operating perspective, the investing results better be darn good. Yeah, well, and it depends how you want to look at it. So, so the the most important asset for SoftBank when you talk about looking at the assets they hold is Alibaba. Uh, very early in the 2000s, Masa Sun uh, made an investment in Alibaba at a super low valuation. Today, uh, SoftBank owns about a quarter of Alibaba, worth $146 billion. You compare that worth versus the market cap of SoftBank, when I looked it up the other day, is about $100 billion. So, obviously, there's some debt involved. But uh, that Alibaba stake is worth more than the entire market cap um, of SoftBank. But when we, uh, so, so, Masa Sun argues that, that that Alibaba stake isn't sufficiently valued. They also own 75% of Arm Holdings, which is a very important chip company uh, for smartphones and the like. You mentioned uh, the the telecom part of the business. They own two th- two thirds of SoftBank Group, which is a Japanese telecom business. When you put all those together, Masa Sun argues that the equity value of the holdings of the company minus its debt, that Alibaba stake, that sort of thing, is worth two hundred twenty eight billion dollars today versus that one hundred a uh, billion dollar market cap. Uh, when you when you do when you do the sum of the parts valuation, he he, he has he has a strong point. However. Uh, there were there have been some questions of whether this this Sprint T-Mobile deal would go through. Uh, the performance of the Vision Fund ha- has raised some questions. Uh, so so that's that's led uh, the stock to be underpriced, which is is part of the other news we've heard about SoftBank this week, which is the stake that Elliott Management uh, took in the business. Yeah, and and I think that this is very normal for a conglomerate style business. You know, when you have a position that large, it's not like you can log into your TD Ameritrade account and say, okay, I'd like to sell that and liquidate this and realize the true value of it. You know, this is a substantial portion of Alibaba's overall market cap, and any selling on SoftBank's part is going to meaningfully change the market for those shares. And so, it's something that you can't unwind very easily. It's not liquid in the conventional sense. So, even the publicly traded holdings that they have, you know, it, it would take quite some time to wind that down. Then you have these private holdings that they also have, and it isn't really clear whether those valuations are rock solid. And we we've seen that over the last six months with WeWork. So. You have all of those normal things that kind of go into pricing. And then, yeah, generally when you are a holding company style, there's going to be a slight discount, especially when you have holdings that are tied to deals that haven't closed yet. There has to be some risk priced into that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, 
we're seeing, you know, I mentioned Elliott Management has announced a stake uh, this past week, $2.5 billion stake worth 3% of the market value. And their thesis is exactly what Masa-san has called out of when they look at the equity stakes that SoftBank holds and Alibaba and these other businesses relative to where the stock is trading, I think it's trading at a substantial discount. So that's why Elliott Management wants, uh, wants SoftBank to do some significant uh, share buybacks, advocating share buybacks in the 10 to $20 billion range. I uh, want some want some changes in corporate governance as well to get some more accountability on uh, you know Masasan who's basically been running the show running the show without a lot of uh, a lot of pushback elsewhere in the business. I think this is this is exciting for a couple of reasons. It shows that uh, it's not historically typical for Japanese businesses to be responsive to activist shareholders. In this case, uh, they've been very responsive. I uh, have agreed to, uh, to 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 buy back shares. The one question we have here is you mentioned the Alibaba stake and, and unwinding that. Uh, given that uh, SoftBank's stock today is undervalued relative to the value of that Alibaba stake, there's a case to be made for selling the Alibaba stake and then spinning that, rolling that into buying shares of SoftBank at a discount. Um, however, Masasan has said that that he intends to to hold that Alibaba stake going forward. But I think if we if we start to see him sell down that stake to buy back uh, uh, SoftBank shares, that'll be a signal that Elliott Management has really had some influence on this company. I think when you look at you know the Vision Fund, then moving more into uh, private equity, uh, uh, venture capital type investment. Uh, it would seem to me that there has to be a higher return they can generate from that Alibaba stake investing in those venture type deals uh, than than the upside in Alibaba today. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I think one of the other things that is probably worth touching on with this is you don't have to look far to find another example of this holding structure creating issues for a company. In fact, we have one with Alibaba and Yahoo, right? They had this stake in this company and it ballooned in value in a pretty short period of time. And as they were trying to figure out what to do with all of their assets, they wound up in this position where they were trying to allow shareholders to access that value, but do it in a tax efficient way. And when you have, in this case, over $100 billion tied to your stake in one business, any sale that you do is going to create it's going to create a tax liability. It's unavoidable. And so I'm sure part of this too is thinking about, okay, well, how can we set this up in the way that's most tax efficient for shareholders so that we're not unnecessarily paying taxes and we're able to maximize the rates of return for them? Um, what I'm seeing so far from Elliott Management is pretty standard for an activist investor. You know, if you really believe that the assets that a company has are being totally underappreciated, you're totally going to push them to buy back shares. That's one of the easiest things that they can point people to do. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, the big question marks about around SoftBank today is if, if you look at their assets, they really are kind of undervalued. You can make, can make a, a strong case for that. Uh, the question mark really is just the way the, the company has been run, particularly over the past year. When you look at raising this hundred billion dollar vision fund and then just throwing that, you know, investing that money very quickly in a, in a way that a lot of folks would view it, view as rash. Um, that, that's, that's risen some criticism and, and has drawn attention to the company. That's probably more negative than when, if you look at the actual assets they hold, uh, you should view them. Yeah, uh, I, I think there are a lot of people that have that exact association of SoftBank and WeWork and Masa Sun and WeWork, and that isn't the calling card that you want if you're trying to pitch yourself as an investing business. Absolutely. So you know, we'll see what happens going forward. Uh, they've announced their second vision fund has had uh, some issues raising capital relative to the first one, which which would make sense given the performance so far. Uh, but they, they are looking at some creative ways to raise cash to fund that, whether that's the Alibaba stake, whether that's taking loans against um, their arm holding stake. Uh, we'll have to see what happens. But uh, when you look at the assets this company holds as it sits today, there is a strong argument to be made that it's trading below what 
the sum of its parts value would get on the open market. Yeah, so I think we'll probably see some very interesting capital allocation decisions from this company over the next couple months, years. Um, I think you'll also see probably a change in how a lot of decisions are made. To your point, you know, if there's pretty decent oversight coming from an activist investor with decent amount of skin in the game. They're probably going to have to move a little bit away from the freewheeling deal nature that Masasun has gotten so used to. There's going to be more oversight. There are going to be a lot more questions being asked about where they're putting their money and why. When we talk about questions being asked <laughs> about where people are putting their money and why, I think that ties in to what we're going to talk about in the second half of the show. Let's hit our ad read first and talk about that. <laughs> Sounds good. You queued me up so well. All right. So, hiring the right people is one of the best ways to help grow your business. It shouldn't take time away from your other priorities, though. With LinkedIn jobs, it doesn't have to. Everybody knows LinkedIn. I use LinkedIn all the time to connect with my coworkers, connect with people from past jobs. I even connect with listeners on LinkedIn. It is the go-to place for everything professional, and it's also the go-to place for job postings as well. LinkedIn Jobs screens candidates with the hard and soft skills you're looking for so you can hire the right person fast. Things like collaboration, creativity, adaptability. LinkedIn looks beyond the work skills and puts your job post in front of qualified candidates who match your business requirements perfectly. That's how LinkedIn makes sure that your job post is seen by the people you want to hire, people with the skills, qualifications, and interests that will help your business grow. It's no wonder a person is hired every eight seconds with LinkedIn and why companies rated LinkedIn Jobs the number one hiring platform for delivering quality hires. Find the right person for your business today with LinkedIn Jobs. Get $50 off your first post. Just visit linkedin.com slash fool. That's linkedin.com slash fool to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. You teed me up so well, Nick. We are going to be talking about some more stuff <laughs> involving uh, some big tech companies and some regulators as well. Uh, we got news that the FTC is taking a special interest in some capital allocation decisions made by some big tech companies. Exactly. On Tuesday, the FTC announced that it's going to be looking into transactions over the past 10 years from all the FANG stocks except Netflix. We're looking at Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Microsoft, and Alphabet. And what's, what's significant about this is that they're going to look at all transactions of, over the past 10 years that fell below the dollar amount necessary to trigger antitrust scrutiny. So, if you look at this year, that's going to be $94 million, but that adjusts relative, uh, relative to inflation. So, we're going to look at hundreds of the FTC is going to seek information on hundreds of transactions that these big tech companies have made over the past decade that fell under, under that threshold. Uh, which just opens up a whole new can of worms for these companies. It does. And I guess the original logic with this threshold is if it's below a certain amount, it probably isn't too meaningful, especially to businesses of a certain size. You know, if you look at a company that's, uh, we'll say, $200 billion and they're buying something for $50 million, it probably isn't going to be a market swaying acquisition in the way that if they went out there and bought someone that was worth $50 billion, might be. Exactly. So, so when you look at antitrust, one of the major concerns is market concentration. And if you and if you look at the size of a firm, that can be a good proxy for whether it's going to have some impact on the concentration of the market. Obviously, when you look at a trillion dollar company like Apple, it stands to reason that if they're buying a twenty million dollar company, uh, that's that's unlikely to affect concentration competition in the market. However, if you look at statements from FTC Chairman uh, Joe Simon, basically the concerns are. That it's possible that as business has evolved over time, particularly in, in these tech businesses that can just grow so quickly, so fast, that some of these small acquisitions may have been used by big tech to kind of kill these potential competitors in the cradle. And this is different than when you talk about uh, when you talk about Instagram. This is this billion-dollar company. Uh, but when we're, when we're gathering up a lot of these small uh, small independent startups, uh, there's an argument to be made that they're they're gobbling up 
AI, AI companies that could potentially compete with them, and that it's anti-competitive for that reason. Yeah, and, and I think that this really gets at one of the main issues that regulators have probably run into over the last five years, but which is that when you're considering how you regulate these platforms, they don't really fall into the rules and the buckets that businesses have in the past. You know, if you look at you know Standard Oil is kind of like the go-to example for antitrust-related things, and it was pretty obvious what Standard Oil was doing while they were doing it, right? They were buying up horizontally and they were vertically integrating. And it was pretty clear the businesses that would plug well into that and what they were able to do when they had them were instead looking at all these platform companies and a lot of technology like AI and machine learning that kind of plugs in behind the scenes and isn't nearly as visible to the end product that people are consuming. Right. So, you know, you look at if Google buys up an online photo sharing company. Is that anti-competitive because that company will no longer compete with Google Photos? It's hard to define that market. You compare that to Standard Oil or you know the railroad companies. There's physical infrastructure to see that you know when AT and T consolidated the entire industry, they owned all the physical phone infrastructure, uh, which is just, it's just clear uh, how that could create anti-competitive issues. Now. Uh, the critics of these acquisitions would say that you know the, these companies are it's catch and kill or killing competitors in the cradle before they get big enough. If you look at uh, the big tech companies, what they would argue is that a, a lot of these acquisitions aren't you know buying Instagram to kill you know kill your competitor before it can grow. These are acqui hires. These are there's a particularly narrow skill set of people who can offer these services, and, and sometimes there's not enough people on the open market uh, to be able to just go out and hire those folks. One industry where we see that a lot, particularly in the past year, is autonomy, self-driving. Uh, Apple, small acquisition earlier this year, they bought Drive AI as an acqui-hire to augment their, their self-driving business. When you look at roboticists, this is an industry that's only developed over the past decade or so. A lot of folks are coming from, from diverse backgrounds like you know oceanographic mapping, <laughs> that sort of thing. There's just not a lot of talent in this space, and particularly in a lot of these emerging spaces. It's not just self-driving cars, uh, you know, machine vision, all those sorts of things. These are very narrow area, uh, skill sets, and so sometimes the only way to get this talent is to acquire it. Yeah, and it would be a major wrinkle in how so many of these businesses have operated for a long time. I think that people that have followed along with a lot of the antitrust conversations that are happening in the U.S. with big tech would say, "Yeah, sure. Like, I understand that you know Facebook and Alphabet via Google and Amazon are probably going to be a part of these conversations." Um, people are probably a little surprised to hear that Apple's name is coming up. Yeah, I think Apple has been an interesting one in all these antitrust discussions for me because when you look back at everybody talks about. Uh, Google buying YouTube, or I mentioned Instagram buying Facebook, over and over again. Vice versa. Really, <laughs> right. There, there's really not uh, an example like that for Apple. So Apple's biggest transaction ever was they bought uh, Beats for $3 billion. And they have one other transaction in the history of the company over $1 billion, is when they bought Intel's uh, smartphone uh, modem business uh, in the past year. Other than that, all of their other transactions have been under a billion dollars, a significant number of them. Uh, very, very small. Uh, a quote from, from Tim Cook uh, said, in the past year, Apple was buying a company on average every two to three weeks. So when you, when you talk about opening up the antitrust uh, you know, folder, the, the companies that we're going to invest, uh, investigate the acquisitions of to into these small acquisitions, Apple is a company that, that finally, it makes sense to me why they're in this discussion uh, from an antitrust perspective. Yeah, it's just, it's just funny because like, they've flown under the radar for such a long time because their whole MO, and, and I think this is Tim Cook's MO really, is we're going to be smart with our capital allocation. A lot of really big acquisitions don't tend to work out. You mentioned YouTube and you mentioned Instagram. Those are like the poster children for things working out really well. And I think a lot of people would argue that 
those maybe only succeeded the way they did because they had the parent company backing them. They had the integrations coming from Google. They had the boost, you know, in in Instagram's face uh, case of the mixed functionality of Facebook and Instagram. Um, I'm sure there are people that will look at a lot of this stuff and be skeptical of this antitrust stuff being lobbed at these companies and say, well, yeah, I mean, I don't think they would have organically grown to be that big. Yeah, no, I, th- I think that's a, that's a good question of how much path dependence happens with these companies. You know, if Instagram existed on its own, would it have gotten anywhere near as big as Facebook? Especially when you take into account a lot of F- Facebook's success has been their their ad platform is just so much more robust than anyone else in the industry, and they've been able to integrate that into Instagram uh, as it's grown. You could say the same thing for YouTube. Just, I mean, the infrastructure you need to develop YouTube. You, you listen to some of their conference calls; they've had trouble. You know, this giant company with all kinds of capital has had trouble uh, turning this into a consistently profitable business. So th- those those are real questions. Um, we'll just have to see if the court decides that, the, that those that those are anti competitive. Then these strategies will have to adapt. We've already seen. Uh, some reporting from inside Facebook that Mark Zuckerberg has started forming a team in the company to develop new apps out of an express concern they will they will not be able to acquire as many businesses over time. I think we've one other thing to, th- to talk about, and we talked about this before the show a little bit, Dylan, is that uh, we look at this a lot from the perspective of big tech, but I think we should also look at this from the perspective uh, of startups. So for a lot of these small AI startups, self-driving startups, their you know end goal or their exit plan is to be acquired by big tech. Uh, you know, if we see antitrust concerns really tighten that up, uh, how does that change behavior? Do we see fewer folks leaving Apple to go start their own startup? Do they stay inside the business? Uh, do we see different contractual arrangements between Apple and their suppliers versus versus acquiring these companies? I don't know, but I think there's definitely going to be some trickle down effects on this behavior, assuming that this early FTC investigation into, into the implications of these small acquisitions bears fruit and grows over time into more robust enforcement action. Yeah, I, I think that it will probably have an impact on what the startup world looks like because you know, if you are bootstrapping something in your garage and you're using your own money, you can do whatever you want. You have a lot of freedom there. But when you start taking money from other people, an exit plan has to emerge. And it's either, you know, this gets big enough that we have subsequent rounds, and then ultimately maybe we go public as a business, um, or we find some bigger investor that's interested in taking the whole thing. Uh, Sometimes that's someone in private equity, sometimes that's an acquisition from one of these big companies. But people want to see an exit strategy. They want to, they want to see somewhere that they're going to be able to get their money back in five to ten years within the private space. And if these are all out as buyers, that could dramatically affect the funding that goes to some of these companies, the willingness to fund some of these companies, and also just the general trajectory of several of them, valuation-wise, too. Yeah. Maybe, if we want to look on the bright side of this, maybe us as public investors will get more opportunities to buy these companies as they grow. I mean, I would have loved to be able to buy Instagram as a standalone company right now. That would get me way more excited uh, than buying core Facebook. Uh, the other thing that we should we should just take into account uh, with these businesses, whether or not this grows into a more robust antitrust inquiry, is just for all these big tech companies, how important government relations is becoming for them. It is just massive. We saw uh, in the past week, obviously, the, the Microsoft, Amazon, Jedi contract negotiations back and forth trying to challenge that contract award. And you see Amazon's government relations presence, how significant it is. One of their head uh, communications folks is Jay Carney, former White House press secretary under President Obama. These are really important issues as these companies get bigger and bigger. I mean, we look at Apple. Over the past year, the way they've been able to navigate the tariff situation has really been beneficial to that company. As these companies grow, as antitrust scrutiny grows, their ability to, to have robust 
government relations is going to be very, very important. And this news is so important because we haven't really seen anything like this before. I think we meant to hit that earlier and just kind of explain the importance of this, but we haven't really seen the FTC dig into these smaller acquisitions in the past. It hasn't been something they've concerned themselves with. Right. And it's also... It's atypical to investigate acquisitions that are that are smaller than the threshold for, for all the reasons we listed out above. But even more, I guess, probative to what we're looking at here is who are the companies that are being targeted? I don't think it's any coincidence that it's all the big tech companies, you know, all the fan companies plus Microsoft minus Netflix. It's no coincidence these are the companies that are being targeted. Um, I don't think people are super concerned about, you know, uh, AT&T going out and doing a small acquisition. It, so it just shows the focus over the scrutiny as uh, among our regulators. It shows that our regulators, to some extent, are questioning whether the frameworks that are currently in place uh, in you know in the antitrust uh, regime are working. The fact that you know we have this long-standing policy of not investigating transactions over a certain size. That said, at least for these companies, our regulators have have a real question in their minds of whether that was the correct approach. Uh, the other question is, okay, assume that we see that some of these transactions are anti-competitive, given how small uh, these businesses are, how do, how do you unwind them? What does it look like? I don't know. A lot of question marks here. The thing I do know for sure is that if any antitrust action comes out of this, lawyers are going to benefit very significantly, <laughs> both in the government and within these businesses, and, and that, that's going to be an implication. That's one of the safe bets. And uh, we, we talk a lot with regulation about how Typically, it will lag innovation. It's really hard to keep up with where things are going. And maybe this is an admission that, you know, when we were looking at these companies over the last five, 10 years, we didn't have a lot of the monopolistic concerns because they were giving most of their products away for free. And so it was a model that regulators still had to kind of work their head around and say, well, okay, who's, who's being harmed? And that's one of the big things that comes into play when you're looking at monopolies. Yeah, I think that's the big thing across the board with all this, all this FTC antitrust stuff. Even if you look at the Sprint and T-Mobile case, if that case gets appealed, I think it's just a fact that I think in, in the next five, ten years, at some point there will be a Supreme Court case in the antitrust arena, and at some point there will be some alteration to what the standards are. That's what I believe, given what we're observing. Uh, I think that's going to happen, and uh, it's very, very rare for the Supreme Court to take an antitrust case. So if that ever happens, I'll be watching it very closely, very excited <laughs> to see what happens. Well, we'll definitely do another show together if it does. I always like tapping my chief legal correspondent. <laughs> hey, you know, I, I got the JD. I've got, I've got to come on here and use it every now and again. Exactly. Well, Nick, you know, and I'm sure some listeners know that I like to wrap up the show with some shout outs to folks that have given us some five star reviews on iTunes. We got a flood of them recently, so I'm not going to be able to go through all of them. But I do want to give some shout outs to some folks. R8R Dad, Freaky Frogster, Muddy Fox, and RCGVA. Those are those are some usernames on iTunes. Love them. Uh, they were all talking about how they missed the healthcare show. Happy to see it in the rotation with Wildcard Wednesday. Uh, we did have one review that I wanted to give a shout out to, uh, titled "Longtime Fool." Thanks for what you do. The only improvement should be always giving the ticker symbols of the stocks you talk about. I'm glad you're working on the sound issues because I drive a big rig, and sometimes it is tough to hear what you guys are saying. Love that. We try to work some of the stocks into the description of the shows, and we're trying to standardize some of that stuff to make it a little bit easier to follow along. Yeah, we, we can give you the rundown of the tickers in case we didn't hit them before. So, Sprint is S, T-Mobile US is TMUS, SoftBank is SFTBY, I believe. <laughs> um, and then, obviously, Facebook is FB, Microsoft MSFT, Apple AAPL, Amazon AMZN, and what are we, is that it? 
think so. I think that's all of them. Goog. Yeah. Goog, Goog is Goog, Amazon. Goog and G-O-O-G-L. Yeah. Right? Um, and, and what we do try to do is drop those uh, listed at the uh, end of the description of the episode so that anyone's following along. I do notice that we have uh, a tendency to use you know this company after we've mentioned the company name once or twice, just so we don't get too repetitive. I try to be a little bit better about that, too. But the real reason I loved this review was finding out that long-term fool, long-time fool, Listen to us while driving a big rig truck. I love getting that color on where people are consuming our content and where they are out there in the world. That's awesome. Yeah, always excited to learn where, where our listeners are coming to us from, and so happy to hear you all are enjoying the show. Yeah, sometimes it feels like we're kind of throwing the episodes out into the void a little bit, right? Like it's it's nice to know people are out there listening to them, and it's fun to visualize longtime fool sitting in his truck, uh, maybe hopping into a truck stop, getting something to eat, and listening to us. It's always awesome. The romance of the open road, Nick. There you go. That's going to do it for this episode of Industry Focus, folks. If you have any questions or you want to reach out and say hey, shoot us an email over at industryfocus@fool.com, or you can tweet us at mfindustryfocus. If you want more stuff, subscribe on iTunes or wherever you catch your podcasts. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Austin Morgan for all his work behind the glass today. It's Friday, so we're going to be playing things out with checks and balances from our friend Burke Ingrafia. For Nick Seipel, I'm Dylan Lewis. Thanks for listening and Fool on. I've got a million dollars. It's hypothetical. Large amount in my bank account, it's parenthetical The money I'm made of is theoretical So in theory I've got it good My fat wallet is on a diet My balance sheet is lopsided My income statement is keeping silent But let's keep one thing understood I need checks I need balances, life's a mess With financial challenges, checks and balances When things get tough, do you do it for money Or do you do it for love? My cold hard cash is soft and tropical My deep pockets are merely topical I hit the big time, it was microscopical But don't you get it, I am no fool I own a bank I call him Piggy, brought home the bacon, he got a little wiggy, cracked him open, what a pity, his inner life was pitiful. I need checks, I need balances, life's a mess, with financial challenges, checks and balances, when things get tough, do you do it for money, or do you do it for love? I know a cheapskate always has a headache Trying to get something for free None more wiser is the miser Always lives in misery I'm cashing in on triple coupons Soup kitchen's calling Saying the soup's on I sing for my supper and get my groove on I still know how to have fun I need checks, I need balances, life's a mess With financial challenges, checks and balances When things get tough, do you do it for money or do you do it for love?
I know a cheapskate always has a headache Trying to get something for free None more wiser is the miser Always lives in misery I own a bank, I call him Piggy Brought home the bacon, he got a little wiggy Cracked him open, what a pity His inner life was pitiful I need checks, I need balances Life's a mess, with financial challenges Checks and balances, when things get tough Do you do it for money, or do you do it for love? Do you do it for money, or do you do it for love? 